following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. First of all, I want to look real broadly at the main message of Ephesians. What was Paul trying to get across? Uh, I believe that the book has one key message, that when Paul wrote, like I said, he wasn't just writing a bunch of random things. He, uh, you know, he wasn't ADD, like many of us are. He wasn't just bouncing off the walls with thoughts. He had a, he had a message. He had a point in doing this. And he had a very clear, uh, unified message that he wanted to communicate. And as you look through the book, it's, it's very evident what that message is. Um, and so let's look through uh, how he breaks and lays out the book. Um, first of all, he starts with an assumption. He doesn't actually teach about this assumption, but it's in the book, and it really is a, a foundation assumption about life and about the way the world is that comes up often in the book. And that is basically that the world is full of death, darkness, and division. Okay? The world is full of death, darkness, and division. Paul takes the assumption that uh, without God, without Christ, without His intervention in the world, life for us would be a horrible thing. Uh, and he says it most pointedly in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where he says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the, uni- in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So he gives this great picture of people in sin and death and darkness. You were dead in sin, and life was not good for you. And you were part of this world system, ruled and dominated by the evil one and by the powers of darkness. Uh, You know, Paul was very aware that things in the world were not good. And that apart from Christ, things in our life are quite empty, hopeless, and dark. Uh, He says really the same thing in uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he talks about the the nations, the Gentiles, being far removed from God and living in hostility with their neighbors, the Jews. Uh, In chapter 4, 17 through 19, he speaks of kind of the the lifestyle or the condition of uh, people in this state. He says with... uh, With the Lord's authority, I say, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Okay, that was me in seventh grade algebra. Hopelessly confused. But he says, really, that this is the state of mankind. All people apart from Christ, they live in a constant state of hopeless confusion. Um, Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Okay, so Paul paints this picture of this basic assumption that uh, life for us in the world, in our own flesh, in our own strength, is not headed in any right direction. All paths do not lead to God, by the way. Uh, In fact, no path leads to God. Okay, the truth is that God came to us. And given our own path, given our own ability to walk our own way, 
No one walks toward God. Paul has this assumption that every human being is walking at the speed of sin away from God, in the opposite direction of God's presence. And that uh, life on our own ends in total darkness, total separation from God. And he says in chapter 2, living finally under God's wrath, that we are objects of God's wrath given our own sin and sinfulness. We are doomed to a life of judgment under God's wrath. Um, So the world is a place of brokenness, a place of darkness, a place of division and strife. Uh, You know, the world is not moving towards more peace, uh, even though it kind of looks that way in Thailand right now, you know, right? There's just these happy, peaceful, it's a peace movement going on all over Thailand, of peace and harmony, right? Now, we live in a world where people are divided, people are fighting, people hate each other because they are governed by the principalities and powers of this world that seek to destroy, to divide, to bring strife, to bring hostility, to bring rage of one person against another. And we see the evidence of that everywhere. Uh, There is conflict and lust and greed and immorality and bitterness and rage and anger. Those are things that make up human existence. Uh, But there is... there is, and what, what the message, that's not the message of the book, okay, by the way. It's just an assumption that he starts with. The real message of the book is that that's the backdrop, but there is good news. That's really the message. There is good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is good news in the gospel of grace. And uh, the, the good news, and really the message of the book, is that while that's where we started from, the reality is that we are being and have been brought near to God. Okay? And that's, that's the gospel. Uh, the gospel is that we are being brought near to God, the true meaning. Um, and by the way, sadly, I think the church, and a lot of times as Christians, we have, we have really robbed the gospel of its full meaning. Uh, and we've, we've said that the gospel means God fixing sin. Right? That Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and we sin... And it's just kind of a bank transfer. You know, that's all the gospel is. I have the sin debt, and Jesus paid the sin debt, so I'm no longer in debt. Well, that, is, that, that sells the gospel so far short. And when you read through the book, uh, the, the book of Ephesians, very little is actually said about sin and the sin debt. He makes one, a couple of small side references to the price that God paid by sending His Son, Jesus purchasing or redeeming us through His blood, but that is not the emphasis. Okay, It's a problem, granted. Again, it's a problem that, that God had to fix. All right? and, and it's important that Jesus did pay the price for our sin. Not, not a small thing. Okay, Huge expense to God to balance our bank account. But that in itself is not the gospel. That's just one tiny piece of it. The gospel is that God saw you were headed at the speed of sin in the wrong direction, far, far away from Him, and that was disastrous in God's thinking and for us. And God wanted to bring us to Himself. He wanted to draw us to Himself. And so He took care of sin and did a lot of other things in order to bring us, draw us near to Himself. That's the Gospel. The Gospel is not something that we don't have sin anymore. The Gospel is that now we can be in fellowship and communion, living in and with God daily. That's the message of the Gospel. That's what he's talking about all through the book. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to kill you off with all the scripture passages, but uh, let me just read one in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. He says, 
we were by very nature, uh, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We were under His wrath. But God, so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. That's the whole point. It's not just that He saved us, but He saved us so that we could be seated with Him. We could be in the heavenly realms with Christ, with God. And uh, throughout the the book, he uses this phrase, in Christ. Literally in the Greek, it's in Christ or with Christ. Uh, The New Living translates it often, belonging to Christ or being one with Christ or being united with Christ. Very good uh, translation of the root meaning. That phrase is actually used 21 times in the book. Like I said, I'm not going to read them all, so fear not. Uh, 21 times, though, he says, you have been brought into union with Christ. Okay, see, it's so much more than just sin. It is about God restoring us into a relationship where we have close personal connection with Jesus and with the Father, in union with Him, belonging to Him, coming to Him, in Him. We are united with Christ. In addition to that, so there's 21 references speaking of being in Christ or in Him, this close connection with Jesus. In addition, there are 14 other references that talk about being or having access to the direct presence of God. Okay, this is amazing to me. This is, and I don't even know how to put this into words. It's just amazing. The whole point of what, what God did for us is He made it possible for us right now today, through Christ, to be in God's presence. To be standing unhindered, unimpeded, with no obstacles between us and God, experiencing and living personally and closely, moment by moment, in God's presence with God. Okay, That is the meaning and purpose of our life, and it's the core of what the gospel is. Um, He says it, I'll read a couple. I I do have to read a couple. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Uh, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. There's that word again. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. We are near to God. We were far away. Now we are near to Him. Uh, He says it again um, in 2.18. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, 19, 2, 19, and 22, he talks about being one family, one, one home. Then finally he says toward the end, we are carefully joined together with him, with Christ, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives with us by his spirit. You see, that's the main focus and theme of the book. He talks about it over and over again. It is really the heart of the book, the message of the book. Uh, the place where he says it most poetically and pointedly is in chapter three seventeen, where he says, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Okay? That's the gospel. That's the message of the book of Ephesians. You now and I now have the opportunity and privilege and calling to live in God's presence and to daily be experiencing his touch and His presence in our life. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Uh, and he uses all kinds of great images and pictures. He talks about adoption, about being brought near, draw, drawn near, being in His temple. 
Um, that is the good news. And uh, we've got to make sure that when we communicate what the gospel is, that we, we take it far beyond just the sin thing, and that it's really about a close personal relationship with, with God daily. All right? uh, we all look forward to heaven when we will live with and be with God, but it's actually something that's begun fully today. Uh, that we are to experience in real and tangible ways now. Okay? It's not just something that's a truth that's kind of out there. It's to be something that we experience daily in our lives. God's immediate presence in us and with us. Uh, that's the core message of the book. And uh, Paul makes it clear that uh, that is the good news, and that this good news is made, a po- is made possible by God's amazing grace. So uh, God wants us to be with him, but it's not something that we do based on our own effort or righteousness or good works, that ultimately it was a gift that God has given us by his grace. Um, you know, I want you to think just for a moment. When I say this phrase, you know, God wants you to be in his presence. God wants you to be with him. So what kind of images or pictures come into your mind, first off, okay, honestly? What, 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 is, what image does that bring up for you? Well, for me, for a long time, it wasn't necessarily a great image. And to be honest, being with God, in God's presence wasn't something I wanted. Because my idea of God was not anything very compelling. You know? uh, there are people we want to be with, right? Hopefully you have a good friend, people who understand you. People who like you, that's always a plus. People who think you're okay to be with. And we like to be with those people, right? Then there's those people that we don't really like to be with. They, they may be, we feel like they are critical of us or condemning. They look down on us. They uh, want to control our lives and you know, tell us what to do all the time. Uh, they, they get on our nerves. Uh, they're not friendly or warm, right? When you think about being in God's presence, which of those two categories does God fall into? The warm, friendly, inviting kind of person or the controlling, irritating, bossy kind of person? Well, sadly, I think, at a, and of course, you know, if we all were answer, we would all put God in the, right, in, in the good category. But experientially, is that really true of us? Well, I'll be honest, in my, in my life for a long time, while I knew God was supposed to be this way, my feeling at a feeling level... What I, I don't really want to be with God because I had this image of God just criticizing me, pointing out all my faults, reminding me what a mess up what I was, bossing me around and controlling me all the time, right? All these rules. Who wants to be around that, right? So for a long time, you know, being in God's presence didn't honestly sound all, actually all that great. You know, maybe it'll be better in heaven when God fixes everything. And then I can stand in his presence and he's not going to be pointing his finger at me all the time. See, the, the problem is that in order for us to be, have a sense of being invited into his presence as a positive thing, we've got to have a better picture of who God is. So Paul also spends a great deal of time painting this image and this picture of the compassion and kindness of God. See, when we speak about the book being a, a book of grace... God being a God of grace. It's really defining and spelling out what God is like. Is God this critical, judgmental person who's nitpicking our lives apart, pointing out every flaw, bossing us around? Is that grace? 
Well, not really, right? What is grace? Well, listen to some of these verses that describe, and again, I'm not going to read them all, but the, the book is full of these depictions of God and his kindness and grace. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 are probably the most powerful verses in the book uh, in terms of God's grace. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself. There's that image again. Bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. So he wanted to adopt us as a father, bring us to himself. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So first thing here, it is, it, it is God's delight and pleasure to have you near him. Okay, God's not up there going, oh, these people. You know, when Jesus was on, our, was on earth, and he was with his disciples, one day he just, was, he just had had it. They were driving him crazy. Remember what he said? How long? How long do I have to put up with you guys? Right? Okay, that's always inviting. Okay. Well, that doesn't have the picture of God the Father in heaven, who through the blood of Christ has made us his sons, who has made us holy and blameless in his sight. Verse two verse three actually says. He takes great pleasure in us. He delights in us. Okay? We are through through Christ. We are the perfect work of His grace and redemption carried out through the blood of His Son. And when He is near us, it reminds us of what Jesus did to wash and cleanse us. It reminds us of His own compassion and kindness. He delights in being near us. Okay? Sadly, way, you know, He delights in us way more than we delight in being with Him. You know, when I say, when I first said, you know, this is the great news of the book of Ephesians. God wants us to be in our presence. You know, and about 15 people yawned, right? Because it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah. God gets excited. He delights it. It is, great, it is His great pleasure and joy to know that He gets to be in our company and we get to be in His. He goes on and he says, So we praise God for His glorious grace, which He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his, of his own son. Who would do that? Think about that. He, in, his, in the riches of his kindness and grace, he purchased us. We were slaves to sin. He purchased us out of slavery with the blood of his own son. Incredible. That's grace. And that is God's grace to you and I. He was willing to sacrifice His own Son so that you could be close to Him, so that I could be close to Him. That is the richness of His kindness. He has, verse 8, He has showered us uh, with His, He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. You see, God at the very core of His nature and being is not an angry, judgmental, judgmental, critical, angry God. Now, He is a just God, and because of His justice, uh, He must deal with sin and rebellion. Okay, he would be unjust. Uh, he would not be God if He did not deal justly with those who rebelled and, and shunned Him. But in the core of His being, He is also a God of incredible kindness and compassion and mercy and grace who loves to love, who loves to give himself to us. 
Andrew Murray says that God is continually finding ways to give himself to us. I love that. I love that expression. Uh, to give himself to us in kindness. Throughout the book, it talks of God's kindness, his mercy, his grace, his compassion. Um, God is a God who uh, presents toward us, through Christ, a face of great favor. The word grace literally means to show favor, to show the gift of kindness and favor. And he has chosen to give the gift of his kindness and favor toward us, all right? to smile on us with delight. All right? Now, does that sound a bit more appealing like the kind of person you want to spend time with? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, and Paul wants the Ephesian readers and us to become much more deeply aware of this, this God and his true character and being, what he is really like. Right? And, and I'm convinced that if we really came to know and understand how huge his kindness and mercy and grace is, we would discover it to be the most compelling, beautiful thing in the universe. It would draw us to us more than anything else we can imagine, more than any other beautiful thing we've ever seen. Um, so God wants us to draw him to himself. He does this by his grace and because of his grace. And it's because of his grace that we would even want to be near him. Uh, he also does this ultimately for his own glory. Okay, he hasn't done this just to save us, although that's a big part of it, and not to show and display his kindness and mercy. But in the end, it also is a way that God glorifies himself. Uh, and what it means for God to glorify himself is simply for him to, to display or show who he is. Right? Uh, because he is good, all he has to do is draw back the curtain so people can see his goodness. And it is a dazzling, beautiful thing. Okay? He doesn't have to make him. God does not wear makeup. Okay? Because okay, he doesn't need to make himself look more beautiful. Okay? Now, I don't know that that's what makeup is about. Okay? I'm making no statements about why people wear makeup. Uh, he, he just simply needs to display what's true of himself. Right? To bring out and show what's already there. Well, he has chosen to do that supremely in us. Okay, and in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, he says it this way. Uh, God, in verse 6, so God raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. He did all this so that God can point out, uh, point to us in all future ages the example of his, the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who, who are united with Christ. So in other words, for all eternity, he's going to hold up you and I and he's going to say, look at what grace has done. Look at the depth and extent of my, my incredible love and kindness. These people were my enemies. They were heading away from me. They, they wanted nothing to do with me. They were full of de death, darkness, sin. They hated me. But I loved them. And I gave my son as, a, as the sacrifice for their sin so that I could bring them to myself. And so for all eternity, we're going to live in this amazing father-child relationship with the God of the universe. And that is going to bring glory to God through all eternity. He is glorified by his work of grace in our life. Um, he is glorified in that we have been made holy and blameless in his sight through Christ. 
Okay, those things will bring glory to him. Uh, in in chapter three, he talks about uh, showing his wisdom to the powers of the universe, right? So that he can show who he is. So uh, God draws us to Himself by His grace for His glory, and then finally, the last really message of the book is that the end result or consequence of that, or really part of that process is that not only are we draw, draw near to God, but we, in the end, are, are brought near to each other. Okay, so we who are his children now live in peace. Uh, and he, is, he illustrates this first through um, the example of Israel and the nations, Israel and the Gentiles. He says, you know, for history, these two groups have not got along so well. In fact, to this day, uh, these two groups don't get along so well. They shoot at each other. I mean, like with real guns and missiles. I just saw it today. Palestinians fired a, a missile at, at, at Jerusalem. And I'm sure the Israelis will shoot stuff back. Okay, they like to blow each other up. right? And they really, they, they don't send each other Christmas cards. For a lot of reasons. I'll let you think about it. Okay? They're not friends. Okay? And uh, they can talk, and they have peace talks. And so, I, I think somebody makes a lot, a lot of money off of peace talks because they're always having peace talks. There will never be peace among these two groups on their own. Absolutely, they'll keep shooting each other until Jesus returns, right? But he says that through the blood of Christ, um, chapter two. He says, "For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one new people." when he in his own body on the cross broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commands and regulations, and he made peace between the Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. And that's just one illustration of how God has broken down these walls of hostility. So we are drawn near to God. The end result or product of that is that now we all live together with a much greater sense of peace within the body of Christ. Okay, now, the Jews and the Gentiles are still at war, but those who have come to Christ, now Christ is their peace, and we live together with a new capacity for harmony in human relationships. And so throughout the book, and especially in the second half, starting in verse four, in chapter 4, he says, you know, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, which you've been called by God. Well, what is this calling? Well, he says in verse four, uh, in verse three, uh, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. And over and over throughout the book, he talks about living in peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapters four, five, and six mostly are about how to get along with each other, uh, how we do this, how we maintain the Spirit-created, uh, Jesus-purchased um, peace and harmony within the body within human relationships. So he talks about marriage, he talks about work, he talks about parents and children, he talks about forbearing with each other, he talks about treating each other without lies and deception. That's all about being one. And so we now have this amazing new capacity and ought to be living with an incredible level of harmony in human relationships within the body of Christ. Okay, so that, that in short, is the message of the book. 
So he says, you know, you were, you were headed the wrong direction at the speed of sin, but God has brought you near to himself through his incredible grace uh, so that he would be glorified and so that you together as his children would be one big happy family. Okay? That's the message of the book in a nutshell, according to Tim. Okay? Now, <clears throat> we could stop there. We'd have a good picture of, of what the book is about. But I want to also talk just briefly about the purpose of the book. Because none of this is particularly new information for us. And I don't know that it was new information for the people who read it in Ephesus. I don't know that they read this, you know, because they've been evangelized. They were believers. They had faith. They, they were growing in the Lord. I don't know that they read that and go, oh my goodness, I didn't know God loved me. Who knew? You know, I don't think that was the case for them. Certainly it's not the case for us. Nobody here is going, oh my goodness, I didn't know that God brought me near to him. Okay, we all know that, right? So is that why Paul wrote the book, or was there more to it than that? Well, I think there was a, a purpose why Paul brought this message. Okay, and to really understand the book and get its, its, its impact, we need to look at, at the purpose behind it. Why did Paul lay out these principles? Why was it so important for Paul to review and remind them of these truths? Um, I think the first reason, there's two reasons. The first reason is so that they would comprehend their new, the new reality they were living in. So that we would comprehend our new reality. Uh, you see, this is more than just, this is, this is great theology. It's, it's probably some of the best, most concise theology in, in all of the Bible. It's great theology and it's important theology. But Paul didn't write this so we could pass some kind of theology exam. Okay, He didn't write this just so that we would have the right information about Christianity. Right? Uh, it's more than that. It's not just intellectual understanding. Um, he wants us to know this information because he wants it to make a particular kind of impact in our life. Notice... Uh, let me just go through real quickly the structure of the book. Uh, and notice what he's doing as he communicates this message. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, he begins with a hymn of praise upholding this message. Okay, so he praises God. Before he even teaches and says anything about it, he praises God for the incredible truth of this message of the gospel. Then, in, in verses 15 to 23, he prays, very specifically, that his audience would get it. Okay, and let me read his prayer. He says, Ever since I first heard of your faith, your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might get this. Okay, so that you might get it. So that you might know God. Okay, so you might know who this God really is, and also that you would know the incredible greatness of His power for us who believe in Him. Okay, so he prays for them. Then, in chapter 2, and uh, pretty much beginning to end of chapter 2, he lays out his, his lesson. He gives the message in a nutshell. And you can get the whole message of the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. Uh, then in chapter 3, uh, the first part, verses 1 through 12, he talks about how he was called to proclaim this very same message that he just praised God about, prayed for, instructed. He said, and by the way, I was called by God to preach and proclaim this message to the Gentiles. 
All right, so 1 through 12, he talks about his calling to make this message known to the nations. Then, in uh, the end of chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, he prays again. Well, what does he pray? Well, he prays the same thing he already prayed in chapter 1. He says, I pray that by the strengthening of the Holy Spirit in your life, you would get this. Okay? I pray that you would grasp, uh, that you'd, you'd be able to grasp and comprehend uh, the, how wide, how long, how deep, and how high God's love is. I pray that, that your roots would grow down deep into God's love. That you would experience and have the kind of life where you are firmly rooted in this knowledge of God's love and grace. He says, I pray that you would experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Okay, so he praises, he prays, he instructs, he talks about instructing further, and then he prays again, right? Uh, why, does he, why does he pray so much? Because well, he's just a spiritual guy, right? Well, no, he's praying because, this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, this is the message, and I know you don't get it. And though, even though I'm, I'm like this apostle dude, and I'm really smart, and I can write Greek really well, you still don't get it. And you're not going to get it. You're just not going to get it until the Holy Spirit burns this stuff into your life. So I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would give you a spirit of wisdom and understanding revelation, that you would really get it. Because until you really get it, your Christian life is just not there. Okay, you are missing it. You're just missing it. So that's, that's his purpose. His purpose is that they would really know, really grasp, really understand what he is talking about. That it would burn deep into their life. That their life would sink deep roots down into the, the truth that he is unfolding here. And that daily their life, I love that picture of roots growing down deep into God's love, that daily their life would be drinking in God's love and goodness and the truth of who God is, the truth of His grace. He says, you've got to know this stuff. All right? Then he goes on in chapter 4, and basically in chapters 4 through 6, he talks about what this looks like in everyday life. He says, he says, he says you've got to maintain unity. God loves you, and he has, He's made you part of this new reality. Uh, and if you really understand this reality, you will live differently. And you will live in a harmonious, peaceful, patient, loving, kind, submitted relationships with other believers in the body of Christ, where you work and uh, use your gifts together to build each other up into maturity, to know together these truths. Right? Um, and then finally, in, at the end of chapter 6, he talks about standing firm in these truths, putting on the, the arm, full armor of God. Um, see, he wants us to realize the extent and fullness of this new reality we live in. It says, you are living now in the heavenly realms. You're no longer citizens of just this earthly, dark, uh, sinful world. You now live in a new world. Uh, several years back, in fact, I think the phenomena is still going on, but around uh, some places of India, uh, things are developing just, at this, just rapidly. And I know on Hyderabad, Bangalore, places like that, uh, the price of land has just gotten ridiculously expensive, out of sight. And what's happened is there's these guys who have gotten, you know, their family has owned some little dry dust bowl piece of land for 
generations, one or two acres, and uh, for, for generations they've had, you know, maybe enough land to sustain a cow, two cows, and they milk this cow and they sell the milk, and for generations they have eked out a living making just pennies a day, right? Well, now this land is worth millions of dollars. And these people are now selling their little dry, dusty patch that made them you know, pennies a day for millions of dollars, U.S. dollars. And so instantly, overnight, these people have become multimillionaires, right? Just think about that. You know, one day you're living in a grass hut, milking a cow, selling it, you know, your milk for a few pennies a day, and, and you know, you're malnourished and underfed and starving to death. The next day you have millions of dollars in the bank account. You are now living in a new reality, right? Uh, you are living in a new reality. Uh, you're no longer wearing rags. You are no longer living in a grass hut. You are no longer driving the ox cart, okay? You're driving a BMW, right? You have definitely up and have the potential to upgrade your life. And they do. Of course they do. And of course... Sadly, many of them don't really know what to do with all this money, so they probably waste it, and there's lots of people who uh, like to take it from them. But all of a sudden, they're in a new reality. Well, that's really what Paul's talking about here. He says, you have become, you were this dust bowl farmer. Your life was, was, was misery. You have now become heirs to an incredible, unbelievable inheritance. But he says, you don't get it. Far too often, where are we living? We're still living back, you know, milking the cow, right? Selling the milk because we think we're starving to death. And we don't realize what is available to us. We don't realize the new reality that we're living in. So Paul says, you gotta, you got to come to grips with this. you got to know this. And as you come to know this, you've got to put on a new lifestyle. Okay? You've got to, you know, shed the rags and dress up, right? Put on the, the new lifestyle that God has now made possible for you by giving you the riches of His grace. Now, of course, I'm not talking about a lifestyle of fancier clothes and a nicer car. We won't go the whole health and wealth gospel thing, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. Paul, but, but, but Paul does use the words of putting on. In chapter 4, notice what he says. He says, This is not what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from Him. Okay, so you're, you're growing in this knowledge of truth. Throw off your sinful nature. Get rid of the rags and the former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit, and his key word, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Uh, he says, you've got you to put off this old lifestyle and you've got to put on this new lifestyle. This new life of righteousness and holiness and purity and loving, caring relationships. Being Christ-like. Okay? Um, and, and throughout the second part of the book, he goes into great detail, which I won't, I won't, won't kill us off with all the detail, but he talks about what this looks like. Now, you, you got to get this, because this is very important. Okay, the, the whole theme and purpose of the book hinges on this principle. Okay, a lot of times what happens is we read all this cool stuff in chapters 4 through 6 about being kind, being patient, 
you know, husbands loving your wives, wives submitting to your husbands, um, you know, children obeying your parents, uh, you know, putting off lust and immorality and greed. And what we hear is this. We hear the God who complains and criticizes a lot. And we hear God going, see what a screw-up you are. You're lusting and greedy and sinful. You're not, you're not getting along with people. And you go, that's right. I'm a bad person. And i got to work harder at this. Okay? I want to be a good Christian. And so I'm going to try harder to be forbearing with other people. Okay? I'm going to try to be patient with those people who drive me nuts. Right? I can do this. Because, you know... Whatever the first part of the book says is good, and so I better, I better pay up, right? And so we try. We try to be more patient. We try to get along with people. We try to be nice. And what happens? Well, I, I'm nice, and they're just jerks again, and it makes me just angry, and I, I get mad at them. I say the wrong things. I get in fights. You know, I, I want to deal with lust, but there's so many sexual images around the world, and internet and on TV and it makes me think bad things. So what do I do? i got to try harder. i got to be more disciplined. i got to get this under control, right? Okay, and if we go there, you're missing the whole book, point of Ephesians and the whole point of the Gospel. You're missing it. Okay? That is not what Paul says. And that is not what he's teaching here. He's teaching here this, that you cannot do this. You cannot get rid of the sin and problems in your life. You cannot get along with people on your own. It is by His grace. It is by living in His presence. See, the reason Paul so desperately wants us to to know this information is because knowing it and living in God's presence is the thing that changes us. Throughout chapters 4, 5, and 6, he does not use the language of... um, you got to do this on your own. Instead, he says things like he says in chapter 4, verse 20, let the Spirit renew you. Okay? Uh, verse Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, uh, keep the unity that the Spirit has produced. We're just to maintain it. We don't create it. Uh, in chapter four, 5, he says, you know, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you'll be singing songs and you'll be thankful and you'll be submitting to each other, serving one another, loving one another, right? Uh, so, so the principle is this. What, what he's saying here is this, that the key to the Christian life is not working harder at being a good person. The key to the Christian life is living in God's presence. Okay, short and simple is living in God's presence. He says, this is it. If you would sink your roots down daily, deep into God's love, life's going to go a whole lot better for you because you are going to drink up His power and His strength and His grace, His goodness and His kindness, and it is going to make you a different person. It is going to radically alter who you are. And all of a sudden, you're just going to find yourself living differently. Right? Now, there is some intention on our part. We've got to know what living differently looks like, and so he spells it out. And uh, it doesn't mean that we don't make intentional efforts to see the Holy Spirit produce these things in us. But, but the message of the book is that it is a work of God's kindness and grace in us. And the key to finding victory over these sins in our life is to, is to learn to live in God's presence. 
to be living moment by moment daily, soaking up the riches of His grace. Um, Learn to live in God's presence. Four quick principles. Learn to live in God's presence. Uh, Pursue His blessings as the consuming ambition of your life. He says God has given all these rich blessings. Uh, Make pursuing those things the consuming ambition of your life. What are you living for? We ought to be living for the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. That should be the thing that we long for in our life more than anything else. Thirdly, daily measure your progress by the relationship test. What that means is all the things that he talks about in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are to be fruits or evidences of a life lived in God's presence. So what does it mean? He says, he says, don't be angry anymore. Put off bitterness, anger, rage, harsh words, slander. Okay, ask yourself every day, how did I do with that? How am I doing with the whole bitterness thing? Ooh, there's some bitterness there towards this person, and it's just not going away. What's that a sign of? Well, it's a sign that you're not living in God's presence to the degree and extent that God wants you to. You know, how did I do with lust today? Ooh, that's so good. Okay, what's the problem? Is it your brain? Well, yeah, it is your brain. How are you going to fix it? Get a new brain? Well, kind of. You're going to spend more time with your brain in God's presence. As it says in verse um, chapter 5, verse 8, uh, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. See, the key is to be filled with light. To let God's presence in His light so fill us that it produces in us what is good and right. Lastly, keep looking forward. Um, we didn't talk about this, but a lot of the book uh, presents things that are absolutely true, but not yet complete. All of the work that God has done in us is in one hand finished. At the same time, it's an ongoing process. Don't look back. When we mess up and make mistakes and, and, and fail, don't get stuck on the, on the past. Look toward the future. God is in the process of bringing all things under His authority and power in Christ. And he wants to raise and mature you up. And one day, you will get there. Okay, one day, we will get there. And we will be filled with the fullness of God. We will be uh, his body who have grown up into maturity and perfection. All right. Well, let's pray, and then uh, we'll take a few minutes. If God has put some testimony in your heart, uh, we'll give you some time to share that real quick. Father, we just uh, praise you for grace and really all that it means in our life. Uh, it, is a, it is a power in our life that ought to affect incredible change in who we are. So Lord, we ask for your help with, um, with living grace, with drawing near into your presence and learning what it means to be with you and in you, to be one with you. And as we grow to be one with you, to learn what it means to be more in harmony and peace in our marriage relationships, in our work relationships, with our 
within the body of Christ. Lord, so that our lives truly would bring glory to you as just incredible displays of your grace. So Lord, we just thank you and we praise you for this message. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. And, uh, if you have something to share, please come up. And I uh, use the mic so everybody can hear you.